What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I don't care whether there's an afterlife or not, because it's not about that for me. I'm not trying to earn points for a coupon on the other side. I'm just trying to live here. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas, sponsored this week by Texas A&M University. Everything's bigger in Texas, including our ability to inspire positive change. What started as a simple gesture by Texas A&M Gavelston students to save a sea turtle's life ignited a national movement to phase out plastic straws. Learn more at fearlessfront.com. I'm Andy Langer. Friday, Steve Earle released a new album. It's called Guy. It's a collection of 16 songs written by Earl's friend and mentor, the legendary Texan they called the godfather of Nashville songwriters, Guy Clark. Guy comes 10 years after Towns, Earl's Grammy-winning album paying tribute to Towns Van Zandt. Earl grew up in San Antonio and later lived in Austin before decamping for Nashville and later New York. Across five decades, he's built a reputation as a renaissance man a novelist, a film, TV, and stage actor, a playwright, a record producer, radio host, activist, social commentator, and old-school rabble-rouser. On our show, I do what one does when they talk to Steve Earle, attempt every so often to get a word in edgewise. This is Steve Earle. Welcome. So let's start here. Famously, Guy Clark once asked Rodney Crow, do you want to be a star or an artist? That means what to you? Uh, well, that we were part of a salon. We were part of a moment that we were on purpose. We were post-Bob Dylan songwriters. And the difference between... I got into this sort of sparring match with, with uh, Peter Garownick once we were on a panel together at, at um, the University of North Carolina sponsored. And it was, uh, it was about... He doesn't think Bob Dylan was that big of a deal. And, you know, because he says, well, Robert Johnson was as good as Bob Dylan. And, you know, he named somebody else. But the deal is, you know, Chuck Berry and and and, and Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson's about the songs, not about the guitar playing. There were guitar players that were as good as he was. And, say, going to another field, Cole Porter was a guy that just was incredibly literary and incredibly smart writing pop songs because that's what he chose to do. But he was slumming. And Robert Johnson was trying to write pop songs. He was just really, really incredibly talented. And the same thing with Chuck Berry. He was a better lyricist than anybody around. Bob Dylan did it on purpose. And he did it. He single-handedly elevated rock and roll once and for all to an art form by power of the lyrics. That's all that did it. John Lennon wanting to be Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan wanting to be John Lennon at the same time creates this moment when I believe rock and roll 
and then after it in the 1970s when Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and a few people actually because of Doug Somm mm-hmm. discovered that rock artists have more freedom than they do artistically that's still moving forward which brings us to the moment when I decided to leave Austin because it was a little I knew what I was looking at and I, I needed something with a little more structure and a little more discipline so I went to Nashville which is where Guy Clark was all those people were stars and artists. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive terms. But we, there was a moment when you could be both, and it closed very rapidly. There's a reason why I got there in 74. I got a publishing deal in late 75. Thanks to Guy Clark. Thanks to Guy Clark. And, and other people did, too. Um, but the window closed. It was 13 years before I would get a record deal because the window closed. And, um, you know, before us you know bob beckham and bill hall and some of the better publishers in town knew that 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 to you know to get help me make it through the night you had to let chris christopherson write the silver tongue devil and i leave him alone um you know they knew well there were oh, there were guys pre-dylan chris was the first post bob dylan songwriter in nashville you know he went there because he had this background that he thought maybe he could write country songs, but he was already playing the Newport Folk Festival and going, you know, out and playing coffee houses. He comes from the same background that that, that my whole group of contemporaries did. We were we were folkies. We were coffee house guys. You know, we just happened to be from Texas, and so this other thing enters into it. Nashville had a structure and a discipline that you liked, but that Willie had just run from. Willie ran from trying. Willie had been a songwriter there for a long time, and they didn't want him to be an artist, and they didn't like his voice. And it's a, it's basically what he had to do. For me, it was just a matter of getting trying to get. I was at a much different stage in my career, and I was just trying to get somebody to give me seventy five, a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars a week, so I didn't have to get a job and could concentrate on writing songs. I was at that point in my career. I needed subsidy so that I could spend my time writing songs rather than ending up you know there was a moment when i I grew up in texas in the 70s there's a moment when well do i go i didn't finish high school so what do i do do i do i go work offshore or work in a refinery there were really good paying jobs for people without high school educations in texas in 1971 when i dropped out of school so you know i um i knew to get Austin, girls were too pretty, dope was too cheap, you know, weather too good. I knew I'd never get anything done here, so I went to Nashville. And um, I met Guy immediately because I already knew Towns. And, and uh, so that was uh, – and he was at the center of a salon. There were sort of two factions, a, a group of songwriters that centered around Guy, who were mostly from Texas, but there were North Carolinians, you know, David Olney, um, some other folks, and other people that sort of drifted in and out of it. And then there was the bluegrass thing, and that was all around John Hartford. And I – that was a real mind blower to me, that level of musicianship. And we all knew each other because were, we were the long hairs in town. Yeah. It's what, 75 that Heartworn Highway is the documented. Scene. And you're, you're at that salon-like yeah. table you're saying, trading songs. What, what was the young Steve Earle thinking? Um, what, what did you know or expect to be at that point? I thought we were all there to make records. We didn't, you know, I had a publishing deal by that time. I'd just gotten signed. So I was probably, I think I spent my first, one of my very first draw checks, I bought a, I bought Guy and Susanna a bottle of tequila that I brought to that party and then drank most of it myself. But um, that was Christmas Eve, 1975. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm 20 and, you know, I'm getting ready to be 21 
and um, there was uh, I, I celebrated my 21st birthday playing bass for Guy at Castle Creek in in Austin, and and um, you know I just uh, I was just we were all trying to impress Susanna more than anything else, not just because she was pretty, but Guy taught us um, me how to be a songwriter. So did Towns, and there were other people that were around. Um, yeah, I come from San Antonio, so before I left, I was at Floor's Country Store, and I knew what Willie was doing was different. I used to go out there on Saturday nights, and I, and I saw Willie at Armadillo World Headquarters, too. Doug Somm was my local, you know, hometown rock and roll hero. I'm, you know, I, I stood in his drive. He's moved, when he moved back from, from the West Coast, he moved back to San Antonio first and figured out he was too weird to live there within a few months, but... His kids were enrolled in the same high school that I had just dropped out of, and I figured that out, and I followed his daughter home one day and stood in the driveway till Doug came out and talked to him. That's, that's, how, that's how I met him when I was 16 years old. Uh, so I knew that there, was, that there was something going on, but, and I knew that there was, um, that I had some sort of awareness that I was in a unique situation being where I was and seeing this danceable form of country music that I grew up on, you know, and then the Johnny Cash show comes on TV and all of a sudden I didn't so feel so weird about being a kid with long hair that wore cowboy boots. Now I got my ass kicked almost every day, I swear to God, until Willie Nelson moved back and the, at the Dripping Springs reunion, I was there. I was at the first 4th of July picnic. Bought tickets, I wasn't there hanging out. I didn't know anybody at that. Well, I knew a few people, but, but uh, I actually, um, Danny Epps missed his set with Billy Joe at Dripping Springs because me and him were smoking a joint by, up under a tree up in the back. But but it it's it was different. It was like it was um, it was about the it is about making art on purpose. It is about deciding that that you're going to do something at a really super high level and you're and you're going to forget about whether you're going to make money. You give yourself the best chance that you can. I think I gave myself a better chance by going to Nashville. At least there somebody would pay me to do it. And then maybe I'd get a few songs cut, but what I really wanted was a shot at making a record of my own. That's what it was all about. That ethos is the guy Clark ethos all wrapped up in a in a bow, right? The, There's it's that. about literature, it's about expressing yourself and it's about the art. And the audience will either find it or won't. And, yeah, and that's and, not and, as and important. With, and with him, he's, um, I don't know, and an audience was important to him, um, but it, but it also an audience. He, he said to me, the, the, thing that's, I, the, the one thing I never changed in the way I do things that I learned directly from him was, he said, songs are not finished until you play them for people. You know, we were singer-songwriters. Bob, Bil Bob Dylan invented our job and then took all of the air out of the room, and we're in there struggling in this oxygen-poor environment and have ever since, and it's become less oxygen every minute. And, and sort of the last of that golden era, I think, is that moment when I arrived in Nashville in 1975. What was it like to sit across from him as often as you did and have him judge your songs in real time? It's a tough, he can be a tough judge. You know, he never, ever said anything bad about one of my songs. I guess there were probably songs he didn't say anything about now that I think about it. Because I saw him once. I saw somebody play a song for him, and he listened to the whole thing, and he said, needs work. You know, and he, he, was, he, was, he could be sort of brutal. Um, you know, the, you knew the bar was high, but he also was really generous, and he showed me how he went about it. You know, he taught me to organize things on a page. 
so that I didn't lose stuff. And so I knew what the next logical step was, try to figure out, look at it like a diagram and figure out what I need. Um, I, th- th- this is a, the, the, he built guitars. And I'll never forget this. And this is why it, the reason this isn't logic to me, and it is to people that build guitars and the kind of mind that becomes a guitar builder. I asked him once, I said, when he finally started building guitars again, the last 15 years of his life or so, I said, he had a couple of guitars going and he was building them two at a time. And I said, and I knew that by that time I was a collector and pretty serious. And I knew that they were built in batches of even numbers. I said, why did you build them in pairs? And he looked at me like, you know, I mean, not like I was crazy, but like he was surprised that I didn't, hadn't figured it out, you know, because I was, I was past 50 years old at that point, I'm sure. And he said, because there's always glue drying. You know, it's the idea that when you're working on a guitar, you, you know, you, you cut and you form and then you glue and you put it in clamps and that's got to dry before you can touch that instrument again. So you work on the other guitar. And the way he wrote songs was a little bit like that, too. Even though there was pure emotion and lightning in a bottle involved, he knew how to let way less of the lightning get away than a lot of the other less disciplined writers that I know. Which is maybe strategy that he doesn't get the credit for. Probably. I mean, look, the difference, I was trying to explain, I made a record of town songs, I made a record of guy songs. The difference between town songs and Guy Clark is like the difference between Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. You know, Jack Kerouac is the people that everybody's romantically attached to, and they, they go on and on and on. And I love Jack Kerouac. I love On the Road. Um, and I love the poems, especially the haiku. Um, but then he struggled for a long, long time, and he died young, and he wrote nothing the last decade and a half of his life. Towns wrote three songs. They were all really good, but about three songs in the last 15 years of his life, and he died when he was 51 years old. Um, Guy lived to be um, 74, which considering he had had, you know, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for, you know, over a decade when he passed away and had all the things that go along, mainly from the way that they treat non-Hodgkin's, plus he kept smoking and he kept, you know, doing other things and, and, and that probably didn't help. But he lived a long time considering how sick he was. And, and that was just mainly because he was tough and probably too tough for his own good sometimes. Um, but he um, he worked to the very end. He worked every day. So that's like Alan. Alan Ginsberg left this body of work because he lived. He did what he had to do to kind of, you know, he, he realized he had to kind of chill out at some point in his life. And that and these things that artists do are called disciplines for a reason, you know, and I think it's important to remember that. But that was a dangerous time. And a lot of people didn't make it out of that time. Right. You ended up eventually stopping I had to get drinking. Sober. Yeah. You had, I had to, get to get sober. sober. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm only, you know, I'm 64 my next birthday. So. You know, I'm I'm a decade behind where he, as far as he got, um, and my father died exactly the same age that guy did. Um, but you know, who knows? I did a lot of damage. It may it may not make any difference. I may not live any older. Um, I'm not taking any chances. You know, I'm working and and I'm tra- and I'm working as much as I can, and I do everything I can to trick myself into be. And I, I do other disciplines. You know, I learned that from from Tony Fitzpatrick, the guy, the guy that does my album covers, who also is an actor and and does other stuff. I learned that from him, Terry Allen, and Guy and Susanna was, you know, that 
that these other I finally after I got sober is what it took for me to do it but I finally started practicing other disciplines and I've written a couple of books and a play and I paint and that's Terry Allen's fault he was like I ran into Los Dos Rock and Tacos which was Terry and Guy's duet were on some landmine concerts with me and Emmy oh god it was you know it was it was 20 some it was 20 years ago probably and 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 it's the first time I'd seen Terry since I got out of jail. And I was just, how you doing, man? I'm just like, oh, man, I'm doing this and blah, 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 blah. My book's almost finished. And I got a theater company in Nashville. And I've, I'm working on a play. And I go through all this stuff. And the new record's coming out. And he goes, cool, man. Don't you do any visual art? And it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and I started painting, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, a few days later, I went and bought some acrylics and and uh, some pre-stretched canvases and started slinging paint straight out of the tube. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's not uh, that there's anything wrong with pop music that's merely clever. It just means that it doesn't have to be that way. I don't not interested in it when it's not art because that's what I grew up with. I, I literally grew up, if you think about it, you know, the first album that I went out and bought with my own money was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because... You know, my uncle, who was five years older than me, you know, I got my first, my mother's brother, who was five years older than me, I got my first Dylan Stones and Beatles from him and my first guitar. I got my first Bob Wills, Johnny Cash, Hank Williams from my dad's brother, who older brother, who was the best nine-fingered piano player in Northeast Texas, Moon Mulligan Disciple and great piano player. Uh, didn't never did it for a living except for when the closest it came was when he was in the Navy he made way more money on shore leave playing piano and joints in San Diego than he did you know as, as his Navy pay for sure but I just grew up in an era when the bar was really 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 high when you look at these songs songs that you probably thought you knew inside and out but when it comes time to record them how different are these guy songs than you always had them in your head? I don't know. It's weird that most of them I had real I had played. You know, I was playing Guy Clark songs before I met him. You know, I was playing. I mean, I was playing the ones everybody knows, the ones I learned from Jerry Jeff Records, and I used to play Sand Mountain, where there was that mural in the back that was, you know, Guy Towns, Jerry Jeff, Don Sanders, and and Mickey Newberry, and I knew who Guy Clark was long before he made a record, and I met him a year before. Old Number One finally came out. Old Number One's the first record that I actually got my name on because I sang background vocals on Desperados. But but um, me, Rodney, Sammy Smith, and Emmy, I think. But uh, with him, I just knew there was something akin to what came naturally to me, which was writing story songs. And what Towns did was a little bit different. It was sort of pure poetics. I, I'm prouder of My Old Friend the Blues or, you know, or something like that that's a little bit, you know, way less words and... But but I, what comes naturally to me is writing. I wrote Tommy's Prayer and, and Ben McCullough when I was twenty, you know. So they're the only two songs that I wrote back then that I still play. But but they, you know, I could do that then, and um, everything else I've had to learn. And um, so I'm always proud of Goodbye and you know the stuff that's a little more purely poetic. Cause I have to work harder at that. But getting inside these Guy Clark tunes, you didn't necessarily learn anything you didn't know. I did from the later ones. Okay. I play, I don't know, when you hear the record, my version of Dublin Blues is what I hear. Guy got to a point where he decided, I, and I, I never heard him say this, but I think he decided that the safe place for him to make records was in the acoustic music world, and he eschewed drums. He never was crazy about any of the records he did where they were actually 
electric, a lot of electric instruments and drums. So beginning with dub and blues, and he starts recording in this, this, this almost exclusively acoustic role, he arguably begins to make the second career of his best records. And But I always thought, God, that would be a hell of a Waylon Jennings record. You know, Waylon was gone by then, you know, but... but uh, I uh, so that's the way I recorded, and that's just the way my band sounds, you know, when it gets right down. So it just lent itself to that. So that recording Dublin Blues sort of set the tone for the record that the record didn't have to be acoustic; it could be electric. So some of it was me trying to, because I'm a little better at the electric thing, and I just wanted to fully realize the the electric part of of of, of Guy Clark, you know, Heartbroke, um, Texas, 1947, you know. Dublin Blues, L.A. Freeway, I play exactly like I played it pretty much, you know, and um, that's where I was waiting for a train. Those are guys' versions, as best as I can do them, as best as I remember them. There's nothing nothing new about them. Rodney said he thought that, that L.A. Freeway on this record was as good a version as he'd ever heard, which I he's the one. I didn't really care about impressing. If Suzanne had still been alive, I would have cared about impressing her, but she left before God did, you know. Rodney was pretty much the only person I was trying to impress when it came down to, to what I do with these songs. There is a generation, probably mine, which is once removed from yours, right. who think of Guy in the cranky old Guy Clark right. phase. And, for instance, the documentary is a revelation because there's young Guy Clark. Yeah, but it's only the way he looks. To, to me, the revelation was... We had a wake when Guy passed away at Jim McGuire's photography studio. And there were all these pictures that, that McGuire, McGuire was, was Guy's, one of his very best friends, and he was, he was the guy that documented it all. Uh, he took the first professional pho- photograph of me, and it was taken on the end of a reel from the photo shoot from old, the cover for old number one. You know, it, I was shocked at him seeing him the way he looked when I met him. Because to me, he always seemed venerable because I was only 19 when I met him. And my theory became over the years, I didn't, he didn't seem to change that much to me except when he grew a beard or something, you know, and it would be like, so my theory became, and I was probably pretty high, but that he was like, you know, Merlin and the Arturian legends that he'd been born backwards in time and he was getting younger, but none of us would be around long enough to see any of it, you know. So he, uh, he always seemed venerable even when he was and he was 33 34 years old when i met him that's such shocking to me when i look back at it now i just i can't, I can't imagine guy ever being 30 anything you and ingram and lyle and keen delivered his ashes to terry out yeah um it was me and they were actually on the bus were were me and were me and sean camp and um, Tamara Saviano, and Rodney, and Jim McGuire, and Joy. Um, guy, and so guys, none of the people guys' I girlfriend. Well, no, they were there. <laughs> they, they all, all the rest of those people, Lyle, they all met us at Terry's house. Okay. And we had a second wake there. Uh, Emmy was there, you know. Um, they all flew in. They were all not smart enough not to ride all the way on the bus. It was great, though, because the rest of us didn't get very much sleep. And, we, and, and there were no drugs involved. We just, there was some, you know, oh, Travis, Travis Clark, who passed away, you know, just a couple of years later. Uh, Guy's son was on that trip, too. And, um, you know, um, it was tough, you know, and I, that, that's where Fort Worth, you know, I, I like, and I've written Fort Worth Blues for, for Towns and, 
you know, Goodbye Michelangelo's it was written as soon as I got home from that trip. That's what it, that's kind of, it's really about that trip as much as it is about anything else. And, and, and it's got that line about how you'll see him again. Uh, yeah, it's got, it's that idea of, yeah, I don't know whether I believe that literally, but I do believe in, you know, I believe in God. I don't know anybody that took real LSD 25 and doesn't believe in God, but um, I, you know, it's not about that. I don't have any need to understand the nature of God at this point in my life. I'm okay with, you know, um, I guess I'm a person of faith. I, be- I realize I'm choosing to believe that there's a God. I'm not willing to argue about whether there's one or not. And I'm okay with you believing that there's not. I think atheism might be a fundamentalist religion from the way I've seen some people practice it, you know? So, but I choose to believe that there is. I don't care whether there's an afterlife or not because it's not about that for me i'm not trying to earn points for a coupon on the other side i'm just trying to live here and whatever happens after that i i assume i'll get you know the the rule book for that you know um but mortality when i I get there yeah mortality is real no this mortality is what i mortality is what i contemplate and and i that freaks some people out but i I'm pretty Buddhist about that. I'm not a Buddhist, but I'm not, I don't know. I don't know what I am. I guess I practice, um, I have, I keep a puja table. I meditate. I practice um, a real hardcore um, Ashtanga, you know, form of of an Ashtanga sequence uh, yoga practice um, as a meditation and prayer system, not as an exercise program. Is because is what it was intended to be, and that's what I do. And and I'm, the, you know, the core of my spiritual system is I'm in twelve step programs. So it's just sort of necessary for me to believe there's a power greater than myself, or I'm dead. You know, so um, so that's really where it all comes comes from for me. But but I don't um, in the in a poetic sense, I've always dealt in you know Abrahamic religion terms because you know. I'm essentially, whether they like it or not, I'm essentially a country, you know, singer and songwriter. And, and my audience understands that better than they do, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So I, I communicate in those terms a lot. Your audience keeps you working. Your audience is loyal. But your audience is, is getting older, too. It is. I mean, you're at a completely different stage in a completely different music industry i'm not sure then i'm you in probably, the music industry well, anymore see so there there's that yeah how much time do you spend thinking about that i'm imagining I not a lot no, no, i'm in the theater industry is what i'm in right now i've got a piece going up at the public theater i just I just found out today in the 2019-20 season that i've been workshopping for three years i just wrote the songs for it it's uh, it's jessica blank and eric jensen the couple that wrote the exonerated uh it's about a coal mine that blew up in West Virginia nine years ago. And it's and the songs that are gonna be the center of the record after this guy record. So um, I moved to New York to breathe the same air as Tony Kushner. I, I moved there because of theater and that's what I intend to do is, you know, I'm still gonna make records. I'm still gonna tour uh, beginning after next summer. I'm only gonna tour in the summertime. I'm gonna concentrate on theater nine months of the year after this next tour, after the guy, the tour the support guy. I'll still tour every summer, the but, September to May, um, it'll be me and John Henry, you know, hanging out Washington Square Park after school every day, and I'll be um, working in theater, maybe teaching at NYU a little bit. Was the Springsteen thing interesting to you? 
Yeah, I, I, I thought it was – I mean, I told Bruce that I, when I finally – I was supposed to see it on my birthday year before last, and I got the flu. I was one of those guys that got the shot, and it got past me and, and anyway, and I got sick. So I had to go – I went later, like in March or April or something like that, when I finally got off the road again. And, and uh, you know, I saw him afterwards, and I said, it's legitimate theater, you know? It works. It really does. Because what he did was it's the book which he wrote himself. There's not, you know, that's not a nest told to, but Bruce can write and he wrote it. And that's what it is. The monologues in, in the show are, are the book. And so it's beautiful and he writes beautifully and it holds up. Theater's poetry. That's what it is. That's what it requires for theater to hold You're up You're one on of the only guys, maybe you, Patti Smith, I imagine a Billy Joel could do it. There's only a handful of people that can tell stories like you can on a stage that might be capable of doing a similar thing that Springsteen did there. Um, do you think about I, I, that? I could do it. I mean, nobody would nobody would care, but I could do it. I mean, I do it every night, and I learned that from him. He's always done what he does. His monologues are exactly the same word for word every night once he finds what works. And I, that's that was a revelation for me. I saw the Born in the USA tour as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I walked out and I wrote Guitar Town literally that night and then wrote down the road a few days later. And, OK, I got a beginning. And I wrote that album to be an album. And I put all those songs like that I'd written years before, The Devil's Right Hand, Tom Ames Prayer, really good songs that I'd written in the, in the first 13 years I've been in Nashville and I put them aside and did not record them on purpose and wrote an album to be an album and he was the he, Bruce decided where the bar was for my the generation of of songwriters that that was that was there to look up to at the moment when I finally got a chance to make records he was the guy that's why I you know I'm still out there playing for two hours when I'm 64 years old he's playing for four but he takes an intermission we don't that, that was that was our deal it was like I, mean, I thought I said you're a pussy man you take an intermission we play three hours and 15 minutes no intermission it's like first time he saw me play he it took a while I knew Gary Talent and we knew you know he he he, he had got my he bought my first one of the reasons Guitar Town survived long enough to chart was Bruce Springsteen walked into a Tower Records in LA and bought my record that and the first Willie DeVille solo record and it got into print the next week I sold 25,000 copies and it kept that le that record alive and it got me on the Tonight Show so and which sold a few more records and and uh, you know Carson was hosting that's how long ago <laughs> that was so um, you know my career's uh, it's pretty amazing. I don't have any complaints. It's hard. Even some of the stuff I've been through, everything I've been through that's been bad has been self-inflicted. And I don't, um, it's not huge, but I have a career completely and totally on my own terms. And not many people can say that. It's a really hard thing to do. Does it feel weird that you have a career that neither guy nor towns really reached it always that did feel level. weird. It did feel weird. It does feel weird. It always has. Uh, and I don't know why. Because I don't think I'm a better singer than either one of them were. Um, I was probably willing to put up with some stuff. I, I think I might have known. Like, I remember um, not so much Guy Towns was like, I remember you know, I had a cabin in, in Williamson County. And I moved to Mexico and I kind of gave that cabin to Towns. And that's that place that he lived there. Everybody 
talks about, and I retain driveway rights. So I was living in San Miguel Allende and collecting a $150 a week songwriter draw because the company that I wrote for had closed their Nashville offices, and the L.A. office thought my songs were too country. So I was sort of in limbo, but 150 bucks went way further in San Miguel than it did in, in, in Tennessee. So I was, like, up pitching songs and hanging out, and then the deal ran out. <laughs> And I happened to be there in Tennessee. I came back getting ready to get a record deal. And I was getting ready to go into town. And town said, where are you going? I said, going to town, take some songs around, try to get the publishing deal. He goes, man, you don't need a publishing deal. You're like, you know, you're you're Woody Guthrie. You're not Bob McDill. And I, and I looked at him and I said, fuck you. <laughs> you know, and I went into town and I looked for a publishing deal. And I found one. You know, it's not it, – there's – at the end of his life, Michelangelo became very religious – but he was a pretty famously agnostic when he was younger, and he really had problems with the church because the church was perceived as being Roman and he was Florentine, <laughs> and they were really two different countries. So, but the church commissioned everything. So he did what he did, had politics he had to deal with in order to work for the popes that he worked for and for the other people that he worked for. and and. And I just look at it like that. You just, we, look, we, we were lucky. We, we, my generation of songwriter, I, I didn't know what to tell Justin when he started doing this. My generation of songwriters, we had these big corporations that were making records and they, they would give, you know, they'd sign me or Tom Waits or, 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 or somebody to just so they could look cool, even though they knew they weren't going to sell millions of records. And there was enough money being made. I have Michael Jackson to thank for my career, you know, as much as anybody else. I started out on Epic Records and I was signed with money that that Michael Jackson generated. And I'm okay with that. It's it's just art has to be subsidized from somewhere. I, I think what's in trouble is orchestral art. You know, orchestral music is in real trouble in the United States because people don't realize that there was a point in time um, – when you know the 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 National Endowment for the Art was just gutted, and it, it basically doesn't do anything but chase corporation money down for artists now. That doesn't have any real money of its own. Um, the period when that happened, Jesse Helms, he wasn't just against Robert Maplethorpe because he was homophobic. He hated any kind of art that he didn't understand, which was an incredibly low bar, and that included orchestral music. And in Nashville, everybody used to talk about it, and all these people that were getting the money were my friends. But there was this moment in the Clinton administration when the National Endowment of the Arts was being run by Bill Ivey, who had been had run the CMF, who was a great guy. And there was all this funding for bluegrass and old-time music and blah, blah, blah. Why? Because the funds had been cut in half, and they didn't have the money to fund orchestras the way that they used to. And the truth is, a bluegrass band or a rock and roll band or a country band can go and sell tickets or charge at the door and pay for putting the show on stage. With an orchestra, it's absolutely physically impossible to generate enough revenue from ticket sales to pay an entire symphony orchestra. And just think about that. That means with no public money for arts, Beethoven, Mozart, you know, Bach, that it's all dead. We're literally in an era where art and science are somehow less than. Both embattled. Yeah, where there are anti-science factions. Yep. How much of that did you see coming? 
Um, growing up where I grew up, and then going to Tennessee. I'm All of it. it. I've seen it. I've seen it coming for a long time. Um, I travel all over the world is one reason I'm not surprised, and it's not just happening here. Uh, it is fascism. It is the, the, the richest, most privileged people just not wanting to pay taxes, wanting to be able to give their money to their kids, set it up so their kids, they don't care whether my kids get into college. They only care about whether their kids get into college, and that's, that's a problem. You know, um, After World War II, well, two things happened. The Depression happened, so we had to start practicing a certain level of socialism in this country for survival. Then World War II happens, and we did the right thing, and we made it possible for the guys that went that survived going over to fight in that war, which was virtually every able-bodied man that didn't have some real reason not to go went to one theater or the other. We rewarded them by affording them a college education, so we had a whole generation of doctors, lawyers, you know, Indian chiefs, you know, whatever, you know, people from every walk of life becoming anything that they really wanted to be and wanted to work hard enough to be. That real, the American dream was actually not just bullshit for the first time in our history. Because the truth is, this is not a country that was established by a revolution of the people. It was established by a revolution of rich farmers that didn't want to pay their taxes. And it was established so that those rich farmers could practice slavery for another 50 years because it had already been outlawed in Europe. And that's the truth. That's who we are. I don't quote Condoleezza Rice very often, but she said that we, we, suffer, we as a nation, we suffer from a birth defect, and that's slavery. And that's why it keeps coming back to haunt us. It's in our DNA. It's part of who we are. So, yeah, I saw it come in. It's, it's, it's there. It's out there in the world. If we don't, you know... Fascism is is a specific thing. It, 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 I mean, it, by definition, it's when the military and the and the and the and the landed gentry form an alliance that doesn't really that leaves everybody out but them. And it's happened several times. Right here. And they do it by nationalism. And what that's for is to scare everybody else, make everybody else so afraid of each other that they're they're not opposing them. Um, that's that's what it is, but it's also it's mainly just the the absence of democracy. It's what happens in the vacuum that's left when democracy dies, and um, ever since there's been democracy. So, you know, it used to be, you know, there, there was some order in in a you know just a succession of leaders by birth. At least sometimes you got an asshole, and 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 there would be problems, but but at least it was. There were laws. They were seen as being anointed by God. People didn't challenge it very much. You know, it's like you know, it's what's that scene in in, uh, in the in the in the Clint Eastwood film and and you know where the the English Bob the oh. the gunfighter is talking about suggesting that we should after Garfield's almost you know um, assassinated he says, well you should you should elect yourselves a queen or a king because. Because, I mean, a president, why not shoot a president? <laughs> you know, it's like there was just something that that democracy has to be real. It has to be functioning. It has to be transparent. It has to be seen. It has to seem to be fair to people. And right now the game has looked so rigged for so long that people started losing interest in it. And that leaves the vacuum. And... We elect our, our leaders with a very small percentage of our population. At this very moment, there's somebody listening to this podcast. 
who enjoys an occasional Steve Earle song enough to listen to this and is probably thinking, I wish he'd shut up and sing and is somehow surprised by your politics. Because that's what we saw at the midterms last year. We saw people who were surprised at Willie's politics. Right. We, that were surprised at Ryan Bingham's politics. Right. And I don't understand how that is, but it is a true phenomenon. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think Willie... Shut Up and Sing's been forever, but it's... It has, but I don't worry about that. I grew up in an era when when I, it never occurred to me to separate politics and music. I write more songs about girls than I do anything else. You better watch out. I may get older and become less interested in that, and then 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 you're all in trouble. But the, <laughs> the deal is... Um, it's about people, you know. There's songs about people, and there's songs about people that 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 either lived or are living in the world right now, and and I have a reason for doing it. And it's not about, um, you know, I don't. I have a right to talk about and sing about what I want to. People have a right to tell me to shut up. That just doesn't. But don't, but don't expect me to pay any attention to it whatsoever. I, you know, I I got my father got called on the carpet. <laughs> You know, at his job, he was an air traffic controller when I was, because I was, when I was 15 years old, because I was seen on Channel 5 News in San Antonio on a flatbed truck in front of the Alamo singing, feel like I'm fixing to die rag. It was a Vietnam Veterans Against the War rally, and I was invited because I played the coffee house on Fort Sam Houston, and they just brought me out there to sing that song. You know, I couldn't get Country Joe. I was the guy that knew the song. So, uh, it it's, it's just, I just don't, um, Copperhead Road's a pretty political record i'm out doing the 30th anniversary of copperhead road this whole year and and um you know that's a very very political record so is guitar town for that matter so the idea i suddenly became a political songwriter in 1990 is like, like anybody that knows me knows that i don't ever shut up so that's kind of an unrealistic expectation is there a connection that is a songwriter you recognize that links all of the yourself included, iconic Texans, singer-songwriters. So from Guy and Towns to Lyle and Keene, what do those songs or what do those songwriters have in common? Um, literacy, whether it's, whether it's an education or, or you know, there's, I, I you know, I, I was present when Lyle and, and, uh, and Keane were both inducted into the the Texas you know Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame, and and I said, oh, it's Aggie night, and uh, you know, it, it takes a college education or it's equivalent, you know, artistically. And I, I think I have. I've got an eighth grade education, you know, technically, but I had really good teachers, and I and, and I had teachers while I was still in school. One was, you know, a guy named Vernon Carroll who taught drama, and the other was a guy named George Chambers who had the best country band, B. Spears, in San Antonio. B. Spears started out in that band. Randy Reinhardt started out in that band. Jerry Blanton was a steel player. Those guys knew what they were looking at, knew I wasn't going to be there very long, and they made sure I got a hold of the right books and heard the right records before I got out of there. So um, I got my first copy of The Free Will and Bob Dylan from, from Vernon Carroll, from my drama teacher, because my first Dylan record was probably highway 61 you know and just because of my age you know so it's just that thing of of um texans are storytellers the, an oral tradition is important here There's a lot of theories about that there are guys that my dad used to hunt deer with that are every bit as my much my teachers as guy in towns the guys that sat around a campfire in a deer camp and told great stories and there was you know there's a guy 
named Bill Willis told great stories. There's a guy named Bodie George who who was actually related to the Gatlins somehow, um, but he he had been on disability. He was a pipeliner, had been on disability for years, and he trained dogs and he hunted deer, and he was getting too old to really do that. And he'd sit in camp from the first day of deer season, November 16th or 17th, to January 1st, the last day, you know, uh, in a, a, a legal deer camp we had in the middle of the Davy Crackett National Forest and semi-permanent camp. And he'd sit there the whole time and keep the fire going for us. So everybody else would come in out of the camp to hunt when they, you know, because people had jobs and wives and stuff. And my dad, and beginning with my fa- my grandfather's generation, they all hunted there. But Bodie would scare, he liked to tell his kids stories. Like he'd tell us about, he, we would get ready to, you know, we'd be sitting on the campfire at night. And he'd go, he'd go, well, when you go to when you go to your to your bunk, watch out for that wild man. And we're like, what? What? He goes, no, there's a wild man. He lives out there, and he gets up under them pine tops. And when they cut the logging along logging roads, when they cut down pine trees, they cut the tops out because there's nothing, no usable lumber, and they leave it laying in stacks. I was, he lives up under them pine tops with a big Bowie knife, and when the deer come by, he just jumps out and he stabs them to death. And we were terrified of that wild man, and this other thing called the two sounding thing which was he used to describe it i think everybody thought it was probably a panther because there were supposed to still be panthers in the in the big thicket in those days but but it's just those kind of stories you know over and over again i think it's possible that texas bilingual history has something to do with oral tradition because you had people living together and working together that didn't speak the same language in their homes. And even if they spoke in Spanish, they probably didn't write, you know, communicate by by writing and reading in Spanish. So the tales got taller. So, well, no, they, they, it just became, it just became necessary to, to learn to communicate that way. And you did, and, and the songs got translated and, and they absorbed a little bit of each other's culture. The, the idea of the corrida, you know, is a Texas thing, and that's a that's a song that's a broadside. It's about something that happened last week. There's a guy named Fred Gomez Carrasco, Mexican gangster, heroin kingpin. And he was a Mexican nationale, but he finally got sent to Huntsville for murder. And and when I, don't know, I guess it was in the mid '60s, late '60s, he somehow managed to bribe his way into the library, got that job, and he and two guys put together a big Trojan horde. They held hostages and started making demands for a car to be waiting for them out to an armored car or something. And they made a big Trojan horse out of, you know, like uh, institutional tables and chairs and stuff. And then they rolled it out. Of course, the Texas Rangers hit it with a fire hose and killed them and the hostages, so they didn't go anywhere. The next day, the, the two Spanish-speaking radio stations in San Antonio, we're playing no less than three different corridas that were the, the trio de San Antonio, which was Fred Zimmerle's little outfit, and Santiago Jimenez, Flaco's father. They all had recorded corridas, and they were on the radio within days. It's, it's pretty amazing. The way you tell stories, the way you talk as much as you do, <clears throat> and then you're going to play a show. Yeah, well, I kind of get need to. How does that work <laughs> with well, the voice? It doesn't sometimes. Okay. You know? yeah. Is there a secret to that? No, I don't. You know, the way I sing doesn't. You know, um, I mean, look, I, the only reason I'm singing at all anymore, I quit smoking finally, and I practice yoga. You know, six days a week. So, my my lung doctor is is is, is recommending yoga to his other patients now because my lung function has improved so much, and I sing way better than I used to. I think I sang better on the last record than I have in my life. And um, 
And the guy record I sang pretty good too. And we were in the middle of a tour, literally unloaded off the bus and made the record sixteen sides in five days. It's a lot. And then I recorded two more tracks. They're only going to be available to a few people because as soon as I recorded this, somebody asked me, "Did you record this?" And I'd have to say, "Because it's so many songs." Right. I ran into to to Louis Perez at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. Lobos were playing there, and he watched. He says, "I heard you did the guy record." I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Did you record the Cape?" And I said, "No." I said, "Did you record El Coyote?" And I said, "And I should have recorded El Coyote." Uh, so I did. I record. I went into. A, I needed a, a release for Record Store Day because it's just around the same time. And we always do a special record for mom and pop record stores. We're doing a seven inch. It's just me solo. It's El Coyote on one side, and um, um, Don't Let the Sunshine Fool You on the other side. And 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 a break from tradition rather than Tony Fitzpatrick. The the jacket is a, is one of my paintings rather than one of Tony's. So you still you still take requests? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> sort of. You know, I mean, I don't. I listen to audiences. I know what they want to hear. I, I, I think it's important to structure our show a certain way. Plus, I don't want my guitar tech to slit his wrists. And he has a lot of instruments to deal with every night, and they got to go out there in a certain order to get the show going. Because I play a lot of different stuff, and so does Chris Masterson, my guitar player. All right, thank you. Thanks. Steve Earle's new album, Guy, is available wherever you buy new music. On July 3rd, he'll play Dallas at the Outlaw Music Festival, which also features Willie Nelson and family, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, Allison Krauss, and Hayes Carl. Our thanks to Texas A&M University. Learn more about a fearless drive to make a difference in the world at fearlessfront.com. Meanwhile, you'll find our April issue at texasmonthly.com, which includes our cover story on outspoken Congressman Will Hurd. We'd love it if you'd consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment, or rating it wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week.